This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to this edition of The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. We remain in one of the toughest times to buy a new car, new or used, actually. What are dealers doing? What shouldn't they be doing? And how are regulators responding? I'm joined today by the Executive Director of the Automobile Protection Association, the APA, Georgini. George has had his hand on the pulse of all things auto in Canada for decades. Welcome to the show, George. Good day, Lorraine. Let's start here in Ontario. We have OMVIC. Everybody pays that $10 on the line when they go to buy a car from a registered dealer. Most of us don't think much about it because $10 is probably the smallest item. Um, For national standards, we probably have the strongest regulation. There are federal things in place, but Ontario seems to be, you know, OMVIC is what we refer to. And OMVIC is the Ontario Motor Vehicle Industry Council. And that's kind of what we're talking about today because they are the regulator. They put out a report in the fall. You have a lot of things to say about this report. What do you, what do you want to start with? Uh, well, first of all, in terms of the rules that apply in the provinces, OMVIC isn't, uh, I mean, Ontario is not the most advanced. That would be Quebec that has the, I guess, best safety net and the most robust consumer protection legislation. But in terms of boots on the ground, what you do, um, the level of oversight of the industry, uh, nothing comes close to OMVIC for the scale of what they do. If you look at their annual report, they laid a thousand charges against curbsiders, um, uh, appears to be an equivalent amount um, against franchise dealers, um, warning letters, They have a a very, uh, by far, other than Quebec, the largest um, complaints handling operation of any of the provincial regulators as well. I mean, the BC is like a distant second and the others are almost playing in the sandbox compared to what OMBIC does. So I'm reading the stats off their report, actually. And like you said, they have laid charges. Over $2 million has come back in reparations to people who have been ripped off by unscrupulous dealers. You know, Lorraine, that number was actually a surprise to us because one of the more common complaints we receive is I called OMVIC and they couldn't do anything for me. They tried to intervene, um, but the dealer wasn't cooperative and they don't have the power to um, enforce it. And what that number shows us is that in fact, we're hearing from the unhappy customers, but there were obviously a lot of cases that were settled where the consumer didn't feel that any reason to call, there was any reason to let the APA know the good news. It's quite a lot. It's a high number for restitution. Um, I don't know how that would compare with Quebec, but certainly no other province comes close. It's a significant amount of money. And what's nice is that in each of those situations, it, it might be that in some cases, the customer's expectation wasn't realistic, or if the dealer was trying to pull a fast one, what, however that happened, it means this was settled with a mediation instead of um, uh, someone trying to go to small claims court or just grumbling. I tend to think that if I go to OMVIC and somebody did something wrong, and I know they did something wrong, that OMVIC has the power to just run in and shut them down. It's not quite that direct, is it? 
aren't they more in the business of, as you just said, mediating or encouraging? Do they really have any teeth? Yes, Ombic has teeth. Um, ultimately, the the dealer license is managed by them. It's a privilege. And if you as a business don't um, uphold the standards for the license, they do have the ability to pull it or to uh, suspend it. It's rarely used, that power. They, the tendency is to work by letters and fines. But uh, there is that ability, absolutely. Your individual case alone is not going to trigger that kind of event unless it's something really crazy like the dealers, you know, absconded with your money, period. But um, one of the things that also people don't realize is you have to prepare your case. So if you bought a vehicle and it's defective because you said so because you hear a noise or because your uh, repair shop told you something but they didn't give you a bill, you have no written record of it, it's not possible for a complaints handler to rely on that very for very much. They could call the other side, but they're dependent on what the dealer says. So you need to invest a little also in sort of um, muscling up your complaint. And that means uh, having a third party go over the vehicle, the inspection that maybe you didn't do before you purchased and that the dealer didn't do, that you have it done after on your dime and you establish clearly what's wrong. And that documentation, I think a lot of people, when they take their vehicle into the dealer and they say it's making a noise, you have to open a file. You have to have that printed down and open a file. You can't just um, go in and they say, we can't find it, sorry, bye. You have to make sure there's a record of that to start the entire process, correct? Or, or even more so, a man is out today. He'll be back on Tuesday. So, you know, what you should do then is send follow it up with an email or a text, something that shows that there was an effort on your part to reach out to them and notify them of the problem. And you, you should state what the issue is as well. Um, I think it's important if you're trying to re resolve a complaint, um, as I said, not, not to get snotty or difficult before you know what your complaint is. So if, uh, if in fact it's not clear what it is, then just report the symptoms and let them give them a chance to fix it. But if that doesn't work, then you really do need to get that second opinion. And that would be when you might want to escalate to the regulator. When we see that amount of restitution at $2 million, which you said is pretty remarkable, you also mentioned earlier that they have laid charges against curbsiders. Are curb people who are victims of curbsiders, that means not dealer, this is individual sellers who are shady and just operating out of their own places, do people have access to that fund, even if they've been tricked or taken advantage of by a curbsider? So here you're referring to the dealer compensation fund, which is money that is, exists uh, to reimburse people in the event, for example, that a dealer has gone out of business and left you with a claim, or uh, in some cases a dealer malfeasance when they're just simply not cooperating, like you have a judgment and they're not paying it. Um, it's definitely a very important um, form of life raft available when you're buying from a dealer. A curbsider wouldn't have paid into the fund. They're not legitimately dealing in cars. They're supposed to be a private person. And so that, that wouldn't, you wouldn't be eligible for coverage through the fund if you're buying from a curbsider. And in most cases, you thought you were buying from a private party when that happened. Okay. But Onvik still goes after these people, even though they're not registered dealers. Exactly. So th the fact that you're buying and selling cars for a profit uh, and doing it outside the regulated market makes it's kind of a bit of an outlaw activity. You're probably not also declaring the income for tax purposes. Um, curbsiding could be stopped if the Ministry of Transportation co 
cooperated with the dealer regulators. They don't. Obviously, if the same person shows up at an MTO office, you know, four times a month with a private buyer next to them or with a, a power of attorney from somebody, uh, they're clearly dealing in motor vehicles and it should be able to be picked up. They don't. They, they have other imperatives. And for that reason, it's left to the dealer regulated. It's a bit like whack-a-mole. Um, you kind of knock one down and one pops up somewhere else, perhaps eventually, because the, the level of Omvik is, you know, if you can see from the their numbers, about half of the charges were against curbsiders. It's a tremendous commitment of resources against people who are doing onesies and twosies. So maybe that will have um, an impact over the long haul. I, I don't know. In the past, it's been it's been a difficult struggle. We usually recommend to people buy from certified dealers, buy from people that you can have access to this fund if something goes sideways. And uh, well, the are... APA doesn't. I have to say we're no? a little more neutral on that. Okay. If you're buying new, you would only buy from a car dealer. So definitely okay. you would be covered by the compensation fund and insolvencies among car uh, franchise dealers are relatively rare. Those businesses are worth money. Even if they're losing money, the person can sell it and make a good gain. So you're not commonly going to be making a claim on the fund in those cases. Typically, it's when like a medium-sized used car dealer goes out of business and hasn't paid off bank loans. And then there could be a big run on the fund. And it is absolutely a big protection for you to have a purchase from a dealership in that situation. A curber, you actually thought you were buying from a private person. So you know you weren't protected. Uh, you do have to do a lean search to make sure that there's no money owing on the vehicle. And um, you probably would have wanted the vehicle inspected. We're not seeing at this point in time uh, private sellers that are more, you know, a greater prevalence of crooked private selling than we are of crooked dealer selling. Almost every new car deal that, that is brought to our attention now has some element of it that would have, it's a little bit dodgy. And that certainly isn't the case of almost every private sale right now. Okay. And with the shortages, I find a lot of people are overlooking some things they previously wouldn't have. And they want a car, they want it now, they can't get the cars they're getting. And I'm getting mail from people going, I know I shouldn't have done this, but I did. Yet still, you could you, you stand to lose a lot of money with car prices inflated to the point they are now. We're not talking about a couple thousand dollars here and there. We're talking about sometimes thirty-five, forty thousand dollars in private sales. So you're saying you're seeing cases of people who bought privately from a, a fraudulent sale? I'm hearing more of not just higher volume, but higher cars, like pricier cars, because the pandemic left so many shortages. And I think people are willing to take more of a risk than they maybe would have when they had more options at the dealer level. And they could have been more protective by things like OMVIC. And I just want to warn people it, it's it's a lot of money and as you said get it checked run a carfax make sure it hasn't been revinned our, our how, how do you make sure it hasn't been revinned that's like not very helpful advice that's again government advice it's stupid it's, how, how are you they can't even tell it's been revinned how are you supposed to know it was revinned and i am it's quoting like so government. ridiculous the, the stuff that I, we see out there the consumer protection information because it, it isn't based on any on the real situation that you'd be in. Obviously, if you knew how to identify a revint car, that would be like being able to, to spot an art forgery or counterfeit money. Most people can't do that. These are my notes from law enforcement. You're absolutely right, because they're, I'm asking them and they're telling me what to tell people. And 
about the best they can do is say on a Carfax, because a revend one will have the same make, model, year, color, like they do it pretty close. These guys are good. But he said if the car had an oil change done in the U.S. or something, like he's asking people to look a little bit deeper than just into that. And you're right. I don't know how much you can tell when someone's determined to take advantage of a situation. But for consumers... A mechanic can't see a revent car most of the time. But at least you'll know the car is mechanically sound. And most likely, if it were revent, no one's going to discover it. Because if it's registered in your province and the same VIN is in a scrapyard somewhere in the U.S., probably the two will never come together. That's typically what happens by the time it's that far down the line. But if you bought it privately that way, there's no question you you could be exposed by an upstream owner or someone with an upstream right to the vehicle. That's And I believe that happened at a Toronto dealership just a couple of months ago, and they made it right instantly because they'd been taken advantage of by they took this car in, it had been revinned, they sold it, and that person found out. But if that happened to you with a private seller, you wouldn't have any recourse. You wouldn't have a dealer jumping in to make it right. Or a comp fund to collect from. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, this this report, is there anything else in this report that jumped out at you? Is there anything you thought was worth mentioning? Yeah. The regulatory agenda for next year, they have a pretty ambitious I mean, list of things they're asking the government for, or they seem to be uh, looking into so and which level of government are they well, it would be the provincial up? government provincial okay yeah you know they're looking at an information package at the time of vehicle purchase okay, don't we already have uvip and carfax and all that stuff how is this different they don't have to give it to you they lobbied very strongly to be exempted from those requirements now the exemption the loophole could be closed so for dealers yeah i mean why wouldn't they the, the tools were developed to drive transparency in a retail transaction. After the tools came out, they had enough lobbying power to say, well, yeah, okay, but that shouldn't apply to us. But they were developed for car dealing, for the car industry. And in the end, they only applied to private sales. So I think it's a good tool. So it's a good way to push forward. Do you think it'll happen? I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm big on record here saying they're asking for it and compelling dealers to provide restitution to consumers. It, that would be that. So that's that complaint we mentioned to you where yeah, Omvik tries, you know, makes 10 phone calls to both parties and looks like they might have a deal, but the dealer won't pony up the money. And so this might work, get a workaround that, which is, a uh, you know, a recurring complaint uh, about their complaint service that it doesn't have enough leverage. So this would uh, rectify some of that. Okay, we have to take a quick break. We will be back with on the driving podcast with more from Georgini. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the driving podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. We're talking today with Georgini. He's the executive director of the APA. George, we're talking about all the things that people who are buying cars need to know right now. It's kind of a, it's still a crazy time. We thought it would subside a little by now, but I think things have got a little nuttier. One thing, let me ask you this. When in a time of limited components, uh, manufacturers can't get their hands on everything they want. It appears to me, tell me I'm wrong, uh, that they are only making the highest end and trim levels of their vehicles available. So when I go into a dealership, A, I'm facing long wait times. I'm test, you know, being tested with crazy, crazy prices at or above, you know, suggested retail. But is it true, what I'm hearing, is that 
they're not selling their base level models. They, they're not interested in making fewer bucks, which I know, you know, why should they be? But for consumers, it's really getting hard to find a cheaper car. I think the median price right now is $62,000 for a new car in Canada. That's nuts. Uh, yes, it's, it's extraordinarily high. I don't know if that's, is that the number you've seen? I don't, yeah, I seen quite it's been creeping high. up. Yeah, we got to 59 in November and then 61.9 and now it's 62 something. Black I'm book, surprised it's that high, Lauren. But um, maybe, I, I don't know. I would have thought it was still in the, the you know, we, I'm thinking normally in terms of the average rather than the median. And typically it's, if you include SUVs and the high end stuff, it's, I thought around 50, which is still high. But maybe it's even higher. No, I, I'm not challenging your number. I'm just saying, imagine how that we've got to that point when you can get a very good car, very nicely equipped vehicle for 35k. You know that will do everything you need. What What are we seeing? Some of there's been a shift in dealer behavior, and somebody could yell at me and say, "No, there hasn't," but there has, and I'm seeing in dealers that I know and trust. I'm seeing things that they're doing, and a lot of it is around that tied in selling and you and I have had conversations about this in the past and I am my you know little sunshiny saying oh that shouldn't be right you're going suck it up that's what it is now can you explain to people listening what tied in selling is what those things mean and what they might be facing when they head to a dealer well you might have gone in on an ad for the vehicle which is just for the vehicle and there's a price there when you get there you try and order the vehicle and maybe you do actually order it and, you know, they don't have it, but they can order it for you or they do have it because it's an ad for a vehicle. It, they should have it unless the ad says, you know, for delivery only and very few of them do. So if you've gotten that far, you might be in for a surprise, though, that the final price is still higher than what's in the ad. And that's because they've added a few things that they say we put on every car. And they're not things you want. They could be, I don't know, a, a green tire package, which is a tire warranty and maybe wheel locks, um, could be etching that's done very quickly and poorly at the dealership. Um, it might be a, a winter uh, mats package, but not for $200, $700. And all these things you're told are, are done before you ever got there on every car. So it's really not negotiable or something to discuss. And that's a tight sale because they're making you buy junk so that, you know, as a price of entry to buying the main item that you came in for. Is this going to remain forever? Like, and everyone's been asking us when, when are things going to settle down and become normal? I don't think we're ever going back to more normal than this because they're still making money, frankly. But those tie-ins, you know, you show up, they go, well, it's already rust-proofed. You go, well, I didn't want it rust-proofed. Well, it is. And I know dealers are doing this. Some are doing it um more than others putting stuff on it already and desperate buyers are just taking it how does that go against the all-in pricing rule which you can define first if you like and then well it does if those things are on top of the ad price and the regulators have done their best not to look take a really hard look at tide selling they, they've they could have done more initially before it it, it became an epidemic and uh, they should have done more and said, listen, you know, those items, if they're included in your all-in price, so be it. But even then, if they're if they're $200 mats for $700 and you call it a winter package, that still doesn't cut it with us. That's still an unconscionable amount. And there are other, other more general provisions. 
that you have to follow in terms of uh, doing business ethically that you're not. Uh, there's three, three. I would say three issues when you look at this. First of all, when there aren't enough cars, dealers sh should be able to sell the car for the price the market will will bear. That's just correct. Um, the margin on a car in good times is very low. Nobody was hand wringing for the dealers when the car makers were asking them to sell a car for you know fifteen hundred dollars over and treat the customer like royalty and inventory the car and have to prepare the car and store the car. But that doesn't that saying that saying that it's it's allowable to make a fair margin that corresponds to what you can get in the market doesn't mean that it's open season for cheating and misrepresenting things. And that that's that's where we're at right now. You know, a car with a $54,000 MSRP that has a six month or one year waiting period. If someone has it in their inventory and wants to charge $58,000 and it will sell overnight, if that's in their ad and it's clear, we're selling it for 4,000 over MSRP, but where you're buying is time. That to you, $4,000 is worth saving a six month or one year wait in your life. That's actually to us appropriate, but it isn't to bring the person in at 54 and say, well, uh, yeah, we have it here, but if you want to take it, it's 58, but we didn't tell you that. And here's why we've added all this extra junk that we're not going to remove and cost us pennies compared to what we're charging you for them. And I think that's what's frustrating to consumers is exactly what you said when they, it's bait and switch when you get in there and we've all been, you know, all in pricing, all in pricing. I know we've been delivering this message for years now to try and make people aware of it. But I, I find, I think it was a year into the pandemic when I got my first um, forced financing question. And you and I spoke at the time because somebody went in, they wanted to buy the, a car, they had the money, the price was right, they, here's the money. And they said, no, no, you have to take our financing. And I remember I came to you going, this is outrageous. And you said, no, what they have to do is take it for a few months and then, you know, cancel it and pay it off. And again, I'm, you know, doing Joan of Arc stuff here going, that is wrong. It but is wrong, Lorraine. And, and, and the is. regulators know that it's wrong and it's happening every day. If the price is only with my, you know, $56,000, but no cash buyers, and it's only if you take my financing at one or two percent higher than you could get it somewhere else and keep it keep the financing for six months. The ad should say that finance customer only using dealer financing at this interest rate. That's what it should show. They don't. And that's because the oversight has unfortunately not been uh, sufficiently robust to come to terms with it. And by the way, when one dealer in a, in a regional market advertises a vehicle that's not available at that price, let's say we'll take a high-end Ionic 5. It's a, it's a car of the year last year. It's one year or more waiting list. It's, a, it's underpriced the way it comes from Hyundai anyway that should be selling for more. But they advertise it at, let's say, $58,000. They actually don't have one. What they mean is it's available and we would take an order and we're going to add these extra charges, but not now. When the car comes in, we're going to tell you it went up in price. Not right now, because that would be bad news. Well, that wrecks the market for everybody else who's selling that model locally. And so all those other guys start doing the same thing because they see there's no consequence. And that, that's really what's happened. That's why the market is out of control. And Ontario isn't actually one big market. It's a collection of regional markets and we found when we were shopping that if you went 
to certain smaller markets. Hamilton was an example. I don't know if it's still true today, but it was quite different. The 30 franchise dealers operating in the Hamilton market were quite different from the ones around them in, in surrounding markets and actually running a much cleaner show. So I don't know how long that lasts before it, it gets ruined because someone starts soling the nest and the other guys have to follow. I sent you an invoice that a woman received just probably about a month ago, and it was a Hamilton dealer actually that contacted me because this was about a Mississauga dealer who had made this contract with the woman. And I do want to ask you about the ability of Omvic to do something after the fact. She'd bought a used car. She'd paid in cash. They had added a gap fee of $7,900 and an extended warranty, a one-year warranty of $7,900. And at the time you said, did she roll negative equity into it? Because that's what it looked like. She hadn't. This $20,000 car became this $50,000 nightmare. And the Hamilton dealer contacted me because she brought a copy of this contract to him. And he was appalled. And you said, there's two different markets. And I agree with you. I live out here and I, you know, contact Tron dealers all the time. So this happened, I believe, in November. It was brought to me a couple months ago. I suggested she contact Onvik. Do they have any retroactive ability to do anything? Or is that just a too bad you got taken? Onvik has many tools. So the first is the complaints intake people could actually speak to the dealer. And we may be missing part of this. It was the mm -hmm. contract on its face is so egregious that there might be a backstory that we're missing, that maybe there was some money that she owed on another car, and this is the way they sort of mopped it up. So I'd still like to hear that. Um, the other thing Omvik can do is uh, if they can't convince the dealer to you know, maybe offer some uh, discount or uh, some reduction back, there are, there are uh, standards that apply to the dealers for operating your business with integrity and fairness. And the dealer could be called upon for a disciplinary, uh, disciplinary action. And it wouldn't be worth the dealer's time if they knew that that were a consequence to hold out in, an, in a situation that was so far over the line, if, if that's the case. Ombic also could issue a, an alert or a warning. You know, Use the example with the permission of the customer to say, look, we found this and we're warning you now that as a consumer, this is one of the problems. Ombic has tools where you know they do communicate to the public fairly regularly and they can do that. Ultimately, if you were to send an investigator in and saw that this wasn't an isolated case, but maybe they'd done it to 10 customers in a month, then at, at that point, it's a license suspension. It's a serious thing. They shouldn't be dealing in motor vehicles if this is something they do every day. I want to do a little bit of a public service announcement more than anything right now, and I want you to help me with it. Um, interest rates are climbing and climbing and climbing, and we're going to go back into seeing a lot of negative sorry, negative equity. People are going to be rolling older loans into newer ones again. And you've talked to me extensively about this. I've written extensively about this. People get trapped in vehicles. And with we've had almost free money for years. Now, now it's not. It's going to be so much more of an impact. What are some things people should be looking out for, avoiding should they be keeping the car they have? What advice do you have for people who could get traditionally trapped into this negative equity situation where they owe more than their car is worth? In today's market, you're much less likely to owe more than your current car is worth because the market is inflated. So you probably could get out of your current car pretty easily. 
if that's what you wanted to do. But if you're going into the next one, you should be aware that you'll be financing it pretty much at the top of the market. And the price isn't the top of the market, but it's very high. So if you're going to say, well, you know, I still want the same car I was going to get before, but now I'm going to have to go out 84 months at 6 or 7% or 8% instead of 3 to 5%. Um, the interest component of that purchase starts to get very heavy. And it really makes it a very bad deal for you. So people don't seem to mind. They're still doing it. Um, you know, when 0% came out initially, uh, this was like around 2008 or so, 2009, we had the real estate crash in the U.S. Um, people learned that they could go from a six-year car loan to seven or eight years with like no hangover. You could go as long as you wanted, it seemed, because there was no penalty really for stretching out the loan. And we had expected at the APA that when the interest rates came back, that people would go back to wanting a four-year used car loan or max five, six years. But in fact, it's what you said. The public behavior this time around is almost the opposite from what happened in 28, 2008 to 2011. So we've stubbornly kept on. And now in the last few months, the market has cooled a bit, but the supply is still so tight. There's such a backlog. I'm talking about used cars. But even though prices have come down somewhat, the it's not enough to negate the increase in the interest rates, and you still don't have a ton of choice. But we still have people very used to taking 84-month and 96-month loans. I don't know when that felt okay. If I go over five years, I can feel my dead father just yelling at me. It's I, I don't know how we get used to this. I, I don't know. Ah. You know what? I don't want to judge people, but if you can't afford, I think people buy a car by the month instead of how much the car and the financing is costing them. And that number would probably scare them, I think, if they focused on that. They don't even buy by the month anymore. They buy by the biweekly. Oh, dear. So you, you begin to hide <laughs> the full load by just splitting it onto smaller and smaller increments. And uh, so I really would say what you want to look at is, look, I'm buying the car. It's $35,000 or $30,000 if it's used, $25,000. And with the financing, it's going to cost me an extra eight grand. Yikes. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's as much debt or load as I want to take. And I really should. Perhaps the last two years of the financing, I should just not take it. Go with the higher payment today and I cut out a few thousand dollars of interest because I'm doing that. That would really be the way. But that's not saying how much will it cost me every two weeks. That's asking the lender to tell me what's the total cost with taxes and interest of this obligation today. And I think you'll be surprised on those long loans, how much more your your purchase, how much more expensive it is than you, you thought compared to the ad price that you came in on. Well, I mean, the first thing a salesperson is going to say to you when you walk into a dealership is how much do you have a month to spend or sorry, biweekly to spend. And it starts the whole conversation off in the wrong the wrong direction right out of the gate. And I tell people, go in with how much you can spend, period, not per month or per, you know, biweekly. But I'm horrified. And, okay, the other thing people should know is car loans are open. So you can start paying them off. You can pay off, like, chunks of them and get rid of it sooner. But nobody does, Lorraine. I don't know why, but it very rarely happens. That's only something that, that we, we tell ourselves at the moment we're signing for a too big loan when the seller tells us we could do that too. The only people who pay off early are those cash customers who never intended to finance. 
They'll hold the loan for six months because that's the minimum the dealer requires to be vested. So he gets his commission. And then after the six months, they pay the loan off. But that's not really a car financing customer. That's someone who was jammed into financing so the dealer could get their commission. That's that forced financing stuff. Yeah. I just, so, yeah. Um, I, my thinking is uh, a really good strategy. Uh, first of all, think about your mortgage because if it was a fixed rate mortgage and it's coming up for renewal, you could be in for a surprise. So you need liquidity. And um, the second one is that uh, there's a lot of really good compact cars out there and not that many people chasing them. So that would be a way to save a significant amount of money on your purchase as opposed to getting an, an SUV. So this kind of leads me into the last few questions I wanted to ask you, which was what to buy, which you just touched on. Look where other people aren't looking in the market, which is smaller cars, less fancy, you know, not the big SUVs and the big pickup trucks. So if somebody comes to you and says, what should I be buying and when should I buy it? If it has to be now, we've told people to wait for years. We can't tell them to wait anymore. So how would you tell someone to go about it today if they asked you, you know, I have to buy a vehicle to get me from A to B. I'm not looking for a pickup truck. What should I be looking at and where should I be going? Would this be a new vehicle or used? Well, that's part of the question, I think. Is it worth it? We've heard for years that used vehicles cost almost the same as new, so people kept going new. Is that still a thing, or is there enough inventory coming in that they would have a choice? I would still say if you're looking at something three years old or newer, that uh, you might want to stretch and just buy a new one. Okay. Because the depreciation just isn't that appealing, and you'll be paying a higher interest rate to finance it in most brands. Because most of the car makers, not all, have reintroduced slightly reduced financing rates for their vehicles. So compared to what you would be doing on a used. Yeah, like we'll take the case of a Hyundai Elantra. It's probably not worth saving $5,000 to buy a three-year-old one with, you know, 70,000K on it. Okay. You might as well just buy a brand new one if that's the difference. And you'll probably pay lower interest rate on it. You do mystery shopping work um, for Fifth Estate and for Onvik and places like that. So what would the APA, what would their red flags be if they walked into a dealership and had a conversation with somebody? What kind of red flags should a consumer be looking for or maybe paying attention to? Uh, this would be new or for used? Any any licensed dealer. I mean, we can't tell people to stay away from curbsiders, but you know, if I walk into a dealership and I'm hearing some things, what are things that would make you pause? I definitely would visit their website and see what's available because that's often what brings you in and bring a copy of it with you. Take a screenshot or, um, or go to the manufacturer's website and at least build a model you want and go in with it. So that's the first you know, red flag would be if the numbers that you got in the ad are not the ones you find at the dealership and that they're more disadvantageous to you. That's the first flag. The second is if you see an ad for a vehicle and when you get there, it's marked sold, you know you've just been had. They just basically got you to come down. They should have taken the ad out. They can do that at any time, you know, or deal pending and it's staying there. The ad keeps running for three weeks. It's just a, a bait and switch. But most people, once you're there, what are you going to do? You already invested. You drove half an hour. You're not going to go home. So the ad did its job. That's, that's really the problem. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, what you want to know is the total cost of your obligation. So they're running stuff. There's not going to be much negotiating on the price. 
And frequently, I mean, this happens every day in our office. People call and say, well, why would I join the APA? You know, you're not offering a discount. I can get the same price locally. And we think we laugh. We say, well, we don't laugh at the person, but inside <laughs> we're thinking, yeah, it will be the same price when you go in. But when you leave, at least a dealer working with APA members knows that they have to meet certain standards. They can't add you a $700 surprise. There may be additional charges, but they're upfront and they'll be less than what you're paying elsewhere. So oddly enough, even though the two prices look the same, the final price will probably be better. So that's one option for people. If you want to use the help of the association and you're buying in the GTA, for most brands, we probably could help you. I think now more than ever, we need an extra layer like the APA to kind of be the muscle. I, I You know, it's funny. I have the opposite opinion. I've never seen us so overmatched, outgunned, <laughs> pushed aside. Really? I didn't say you were a bigger muscle. I just said you're more muscle than no, me walking in alone. It's, it's worse because, it, you know, what works for us is finesse. Of course, we, we warn people, you know, we do um, try and make regulators aware that there's problems that are, are bothersome to the public, that they could do more. Uh, we're a big a source of, of uh, reports to Transport Canada for defective vehicles. We're one of the more important conduits for that. But the thing that makes us powerful is we could always tell a, a customer, a, a consumer, listen, if you don't like it, you can take your business somewhere else. And we actually know who has the, that business. So it gave us some power, some leverage. Today, that choice is impossible. There isn't somewhere else. If you found the vehicle, it's probably only one out there that you could get. If you go somewhere else, you're going to be at the back of a new line at the new higher price anyway. So most people just take it. Do you see any relief in sight? Uh, in sight, no, but I do see relief. I mean, I, I think eventually uh, production will begin to increase enough that the backlog, which is months, uh, yeah. will, will begin to clear. Um, maybe the car makers will allow dealers a slightly better margin on their vehicles. I haven't seen any sign of it where the, the gap between wholesale and resale will increase. So dealers don't have to cheat so much. And I think um, the transition to electrical ve electric vehicles is going to happen quickly right now. Still more than nine out of 10 new vehicles is a gas vehicle. But um, for EVs, I don't think that these tricks are going to change. I think they're going to be with us to the end of the decade. Or possibly the end of time, it feels Well, like. no, by the end of the decade, there'll be <laughs> hopefully enough EVs out there that you'll have an option of going somewhere else. That's the hope. But I, yeah. It's hard to crystal ball more than a, a little bit ahead. But definitely 2023 is going to go down as another year of the, the customer getting shafted. And that's just the way it is. Okay. I hate to end a podcast on a negative note, but at least it's a very honest one. That's it for this edition of the Driving Podcast. A huge thanks to my guest, Georgie Need George. Thank you so much for being here. And the APA, you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Please be sure to check out previous episodes of the Driving Podcast. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll see you next time. <music>